some winter wide field wonders on episode 310 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up at the nighttime sky, and our podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. So, Shane, I'm not really sure why this is exactly, but I've had several requests about more information about my wide field wonders list that I published like 10 years ago. <laughs> well, you know, we've talked like when Alistair was on the show, we we brought it or he brought it up then. You know, it is a bit of a unique list, I think. I, I don't know how many others focus on real wide field views and you know, capturing that sort of stuff. So it, it is somewhat unique in that regard. You know, I think it's a good topic. We had a a, a listener um, who kind of succinctly put it, I, I've chatted, I think now with four or five people who were asked for some stuff. And I, I ended up putting a quote from uh, Tyler's email into the show notes. Would you mind uh, maybe going in and, and just taking a read of that through and then we'll hop into things? Yeah, for sure. So Tyler said, uh, would you talk through some of your objects on the wide field wonders observing list? You wouldn't necessarily have to do any preparation. Just look at the list together, talk about a few of your favorite objects on the list and memorable observations of them and or tips for observing them. Uh, might be a few episodes. Similarly, I would be really curious to hear a tour of some of the best H-beta objects and what they are like in a small uh, telescope, uh, like an extended infomercial on why listeners should buy an H-beta filter. You could even do a companion episodes on the best O3 objects, the best UHC objects, and the best extended objects that don't take filters well. Again, just talking about your own experiences. Do you have any thoughts about planetary nebula? Small, bright planetaries are becoming my nemesis object class. Uh, based on their magnitude, they seem like they should be so easy to find, but I've gotten stumped by them repeatedly. With galaxies, you just star hop until you get to the field, and they're either there or not. But with planetaries, I always end up turned around and can never tell which are the field stars and which is the nebula. Any advice would be appreciated. So that's from Tyler. Thanks for the uh, email, Tyler. So, Shane, you kind of tagged on a bit of a question about the uh, small planetary nebulae at the end. What uh, Do you have any advice maybe for uh, Tyler on how we can identify those those little tight planetary nebulae versus uh, just the regular field stars? I think I'd offer up two things. One is just have a real good star chart that matches the aperture of your telescope. One of the key things that stands out for me, and this is from, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he had a goal to do the Herschel 400 with a 50 millimeter telescope or 55 oh, millimeter. Freeman. J. Reynolds Freeman. He yeah, yeah. It, it was a real small aperture, 50 or 55 millimeter. And I think he was even doing it in a urban sky, actually. One of the things he really, uh, so he gave his tips on how to do this. And one of the things he stressed was know the limiting magnitude uh, of your telescope because you have to make sure you get the field right. You know, you want to have all of the stars visible through the telescope also visible on your your chart and, and no more and no fewer stars so that you can absolutely confirm you have the right field. So that's tip number one. Just make sure you have like a real good star chart that matches the aperture or limiting magnitude of your telescope. And then the uh, the second thing I would say is with a planetary nebula, use some magnification. Like once you think you've got it in the field of view, crank it up um, because a planetary nebula can typically take that magnification and then it should start to separate itself in terms of appearance uh, with the background stars. Anything you would like to add to that, Chris? 
I, I think that's perfect. I just went and grabbed the link for Jane Reynolds Freeman's article. On, oh, great. So I, I put that in. Maybe we can post the show notes for this episode, if that would be possible. Yep, absolutely. So a little bit of background, maybe if we can, are you ready to hop into some Whitefield Wonders for the Winter Sky? Yeah, let's go. A little bit of background on this, and it's it's fitting in uh, several ways because we, we just chatted to uh, Dave about an hour ago. I created that list in collaboration with uh, Dave Chapman. So that list would not exist without Dave's help and support. He's been a mentor of mine, prompted me to put something together, basically just to fill a couple pages of the RESC Observer's Handbook. So it's it's filler. <laughs> well, you know, it's a good suggestion by Dave, and I'm, I'm glad you followed up on it because this is this is an interesting list. I, I think that what Dave was uh, nudging me towards was just based on the fact that when I observe, I, I guess I observe a little bit maybe off-Broadway or whatever you want to call it, and he was always interested, and uh, several of the members of the Halifax RESC Center, which is the astronomy club in, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, they're always like, hey, like, what are you observing now? Like, you know, like, you're always observing weird stuff. Like, I want to hear more about this. So that's kind of where it came from, which is sort of a bit of a local uh, interest. But with that, I think I have to put, I always have to put a bit of a rider. Ever since now, since we chatted with Alistair last week, I feel like I have to qualify things a little bit. So there's some failings in the list, Shane. You're telling me that this list is not perfect, it, Chris? It, it's, <laughs> it's not. So some of the objects aren't that wide. Hmm. There's some... Well, I don't know if we can continue. Okay. <laughs> Even the first object. So it's it's a little bit disappointing to me that the way that we made it up and we kind of just sort of uh, put it together and there were some things that I wanted that we couldn't put in because we were trying to put it in the handbook, which already has things like Messier 31, for example. And the first object I start talking about is NGC 206, which is a star cloud in Messier 31. It's only five arc minutes across. So you could see that in a massive telescope with high power almost, you know, it's going to fit in the mm. field of view. You don't mm. need a wide field instrument to see it. For sure. Yeah. So just kind of the way some of it panned out in the end, just because of the way like we were working within a format. And I think one of the things I want to do is redo the list and sort of break it out of that format. Okay. Some of the other things are that you really need a set of unfortunately expensive two inch filters to observe many of the objects. Mm, yeah. And, and, you know, the filter price for two inch glass compared to one and a quarter inch, uh, you know, that price really skyrockets. <laughs> yeah. And I think because of that, there's, there's sort of this weird friction point with many observers because they tend to go and get a one and a quarter inch filter and they're going to buy that later sort of in their observing path. So they've already sold their lower power or aren't using their lower power one and a quarter inch eyepieces. And therefore, they're using the one and a quarter inch UHC or O3 on optics that are a little bit too high powered that are going to work well for this list, right? That may work well for like small planetary nebula like uh, Tyler was talking about. But but for the objects that are in this list that uh, that I curated... Yeah, it's not going to work out so well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some of the uh, the other things are that you really need truly wide fields. And as as you know, Shane, I spent an inordinate amount of time tracking down an old pair of like 13 degree binoculars from the 60s. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
And not that it was that expensive to get them. I think I paid like 150 or $180 for them. However, they were just hard to come by. And those are one of the pieces of equipment that I like using for my wide field observing. And some of the other stuff include like my five inch F6 apochromatic telescope, which is definitely a custom piece of gear. So those kind of optics just aren't typically sitting on observer's shelf and maybe they shouldn't be, you know, this is just how I like to observe. And, you know, this is my uh, sort of idiosyncratic observing and kind of in, in sort of the extreme other way of, you know, we'll talk to Howard Banich there in, uh, in April and, and he's on the other extreme and he's observing with 28 and, and, and larger inch telescopes. So there, there's probably not as many people that are just going to have all these rare, large, expensive filters, and then uh, fast uh, apochromatic glass is just sort of a strange combination uh, to have. Yeah. And, you know, I think for folks, like just to make sure that they don't stop listening at this point, if they don't have all of that, gear, (laughs) you know, if you have a relatively fast telescope, and if all you have is inch and a quarter, you know, if you have something like a 24 millimeter pan optic and you have the right filters, I think a lot of these objects will still be attainable. There's some that may not just with your field of view, but you know, don't give up hope. I think there's, <laughs> there's some opportunity here. There is one more thing though, I got to mention as a caveat. And that's that for, for us, we fortunately live within a three hour drive of the darkest place along the 49th parallel. Mm-hmm. And it's, perhaps the darkest place that that sees the summer milky way in all its glory uh in canada and perhaps in the northern part of the united states even and that does bias the list quite a bit because i had started the list and moved out here and began observing there and that's where i finished it and that is like a truly exceptional bordel one sky uh, without any exception so with that, I'll talk a little bit about my equipment, maybe a little bit more. I've got a pile of different binoculars from 7x50, 7x35, 22x100s, Pentax eyepieces, lots of those filters. And then I also even have like the custom Borg 50 millimeter F5 Acro that you made, which I've actually been almost redoing this list the past two years with that telescope because that telescope is an absolute wide field monster. Yeah, yeah. And... I still cannot get over how well corrected the uh, the field of view is for such a fast telescope. Like it certainly degrades a bit at the edge, but not not nearly what I was expecting. Like you know, if you look at the F five ST eighty, the fall off from the center of the field of view is, for my eyes anyway, is quite substantial mm-hmm. uh, as you move to the edge. But in this little Borg, which again is F five super fast, it's pretty tight almost to the edge. It, it uh, you know, again, it does have some degradation, but it is a fantastic little telescope. And just kind of coincidentally enough, because I know that you um, had a few different challenges with getting yours to work in two inch mode that I didn't just the way my equipment was set up to use with that little scope, my uh, two inch stuff works perfectly with it. And then I acquired a 32 millimeter mass Yama, which has an 84 degree apparent field. Uh, Apparently, I think it's a little bit less than that. But uh, regardless, it gives you as wide a field of view as you can reasonably get in a um, in a two inch format at eyepiece. And with F5, I'm kind of getting like a very perfect exit people of around six millimeters and I can thread in filters and slide them in and stuff. It's uh, it's just absolute wide field monster being a 10 degree true field of view. Actually, it's like 10.5 degree true field of view of which about 10 degrees of it is completely usable with the filter in place. Mm-hmm. General guidance, 
most of these objects, they can be viewed in 60 millimeter, 200 millimeter, F5 to F7 refractors. And I, I should mention this is that like that Borg that, that you made up for me, it's, it's a custom setup, but it's totally possible and doable. It was, I forget how much it ended up costing in total, but without the diagonal and some of the other stuff, like maybe 250 or $300 Canadian or American or something like that. Not like an unobtainable piece of gear, just a lot of futzing to get it together. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've mentioned by EE or Zen market in the past, which is access to uh, some Japan astronomy auction sites. They pop up on there fairly regularly. And yeah, in that probably 300 range is not uncommon. You know, I think you get just about everything you need with that package typically to, to start observing. Okay. Ready for the objects. There's going to be sort of rapid fire, 20 objects. Speed dating. Here we go. Like speed dating for astronomical targets. Okay. First target is NGC 206, which is a star cloud in Andromeda. This is just a star cloud on the edge of some dark lanes. However, as, as I said in the intro, it's not really a large object. It's only five arc minutes across. I've seen it in my five inch. I've seen it in six inch telescopes. You don't really need that wide field of view to see it, but the best way to see it is no filter, nothing like that. Just use a pretty wide field eyepiece. And then you want to be able to view M32. There's a star next to M32. I've made up star charts for all of this as well. It's sort of at the long arm of sort of a funny shaped triangle. And you need to uh, go from M32 to the star. You move up to this dark lane. You can follow that dark lane along to to get to NGC 206, which is uh, seeing a star cloud inside of the uh, Andromeda galaxy, which is pretty fun. In fact, is that the there's not, is that the only NGC outside of our galaxy or one of the few? I can't remember. There, there's, there's several others. Is there? Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. There's a few in M33 and yeah, yeah, yeah. I think NGC 604 is in M33, but now I'm talking off the top of my head. Okay. Sorry All to right. put you on the spot. No worries. <laughs> no worries. Happy to do it. All right. Colander 463. This is a target that is not going to roll off anybody's tongue, but it's in a neat spot. It's sort of at the four corners of Cassiopeia, Camelopardalis, Ursa Minor, and Cepheus. It's sort of right in the middle of where all those constellations meet, just a little bit closer to Cassiopeia, which is its home constellation. It's just on the edge of the Milky Way. And this is called the Crescent Cluster. It appears as about only four dozen stars, but it's scattered over an almost one degree field of view. It's a pretty cool object to see hanging off the edge of the Milky Way. Yeah, that's awesome. And and it sort of aligns quite nicely with the recent episode with Dave Chapman on uh, Stars You Should Know in the North. We were all kind of right in that area during that entire episode. Stock 2 is also located in Cassiopeia. It's an open cluster. It's about one degree. And if you don't, if you're an observer and you've observed for any period of time, you're going to have observed the double cluster. So Stock 2 is really like the third member of the double cluster. (laughs) Mm. You find this by locating the double cluster first. There's a meandering star chain that heads north, goes about two degrees, just over two degrees, I think. And then you land on stock two, which is a one degree open cluster. Yeah, it's a really nice cluster. I like that one a lot. And you can see it. uh, It's a beautiful uh, site in binoculars and small, really wide field telescopes. They can give you like four or five degree fields of view because you can see the double cluster and stock two in the same field of view at the same time. 
Mm -hmm. And so far, you know, the objects we've talked about, or you've talked about are, are one degree or, or less, I think. And, you know, so pretty easy in any telescope. Glad you said that because things get a little bit more good. Yeah, I see that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 part of the method to the madness, I think when Dave curated the list and then Dave edited it. And so I think he did that on purpose because now we get into IC 1805 and IC 18. 48, also in Cassiopeia, not too far from the double cluster in stock two, just a little bit uh, to the left. And this area encompasses over 4.5 degrees of field. This is the heart and soul nebulae. It's a large complex of nebulae and star clusters. You absolutely need to use a filter for it. I see 1795 is the brightest part on the northern section of IC1805, which is the heart. However, this is all well seen in my 50 millimeter and 60 millimeter telescopes using two inch eyepieces and two inch UHC filters. And you can use a pretty inexpensive two inch eyepiece to see these with that setup. I did tons of sketches of it this past summer with the 50 millimeter that you made up for me, Shane. Yeah. Do you need a dark sky for this one, Chris? Like a real dark sky or moderately dark sky? This one and some of the next ones, you need a pretty dark sky. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. I was just at my dark sky site 30 minutes outside the city. So it's dark, but it's not like the darkest sky in the world. I always say it's like, it's kind of like the racetrack on Top Gear. It's a reasonably dark sky site, right? This <laughs> is dark sky site that most people are going to have access to. Yeah. Don't get discouraged too, if you don't find this on, on your first attempt, because sky conditions also play a bit of a factor with these ones. And uh, if transparency is not great, you, you might struggle a little bit here too. The next one's pretty easy. It's in Cetus. It's more of an, an autumn asterism. It's uh, 2.5 degrees by one degree. And we call this the cosmic question mark. This mm -hmm. is just a grouping of stars, Shane. But I think mm -hmm. this is one of the interesting objects that most people have never looked at before. Most people are fascinated by the Cotire cluster yep. up in uh, Volpecula. However, this uh, cosmic question mark is almost like its autumnal counterpart being that it looks exactly like a question mark mm -hmm. and it's in a really easy spot to locate. It's in sort of that, whatever it is, or five-side pattern pentagon feature in the uh, top of Cetus. Yeah, it's, it's a neat one um, and it is very apparent. Binocular target and... I think probably any any even reasonably dark location in a city you can see that one from. Mm -hmm. Malat 20, this is one of my favorite objects oh, yeah. in the list. And yeah. it does not require a super dark sky, but I think it's so worth seeking out a dark sky to view it in. This is a huge open cluster in Perseus, and it's five degrees in diameter. It's positive two magnitude so it's very bright it's also known as the perseus ob3 association and it surrounds murfak which is the brightest star in perseus you can see this from the city with your binoculars but if you get to a really dark sky site i think that's when it looks most beautiful and to the unaided eye to the naked eye it looks like a chandelier shimmering as it's rising in the early morning sky in the summer Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorites as well. I, I can spend the entire night looking through Malat 20. There's, there's a number of double stars in there as well. And, uh, you know, if anybody's interested in that one, uh, do a little research. There's a lot of intrigue there for sure. Another good one that you're going to love, Shane, is Kemble's Cascade. That's our next asterism. 
Yeah, well, the the local flavor, Lucien Campbell lived 15 minutes away probably from my house yeah. and did a lot of observing from there. That that connection is neat and and this is a real beautiful asterism as well. Colorful, beautiful chain of 20 stars terminating in the open cluster NGC 1502, named in honor of Father Lucian Kemble by a favorite writer of mine, uh, Walter Scott Houston. Very easily seen in binoculars and telescopes. Again, I, I feel like the darker sky, the better, but this one is visible from the city in your binoculars. Mm-hmm. The next target is not. <laughs> not easily uh, anyway. Yes, yes. This is the uh, the Taurus molecular cloud, which really just sort of rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and Shane, do you know what a molecular cloud is? And did uh, you mo- see them? <laughs> lots of molecules, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> These are like giant carbon clouds and clouds of different materials that are yeah. in space. But this one's interesting because the very bright, one of the brightest, if not the brightest, open cluster is passing through this. M45, the Pleiades, is passing through the Taurus giant molecular cloud. And while Messier never glimpsed images of the cluster, will almost always now show this blue, gauzy glow around it. So that's mm-hmm. what that is. The Merope Nebula is the part that most people are most familiar with. However, you can see some giant components, and I recommend using extremely broadband filters. Can You can find these from Batter. I, f- I forget the name. I have one that works very well for this. It's like an IR type filter. The objects that you can try to identify include NGC 1435, but the best part that I've been able to detect, and you, you can see just by panning the field with or without a filter, is IC 353349 and IC 1995. You can also look for dark nebulae appearing as a haze over a dim background field as you pan north up towards Origa. And that portion is called the Taurus Dark Nebulae Complex. And it's in that sort of region that uh, is between uh, Taurus, Perseus, and Origa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely definitely need some dark skies for this one. Yeah, absolutely. You need pretty dark skies. Not the darkest skies, though. Again, that's sort of like a reasonably dark sky site thing. Mm-hmm. And the next one as well. This this one, I think, speaks to what uh, Tyler was asking for earlier, which is a bit of a tour of H-beta objects and NGC 1499 in Perseus is, is an emission nebula. And this is where I send people when they are asking for their first target to hunt down with an H-beta filter, because I think the California nebula in Perseus is, is the best one to hunt down first. It's pretty bright. I've seen it from binoculars without any filters at all. <laughs> but if you have a little telescope, like a 60 millimeter that has a wide field, and you put that two inch H beta on there, like you were saying, 24 millimeter panoptic or something like that with the H beta on there or a really good UHC, this nebula is just going to pop out between Zeta Perseus and Adidas Australis just off uh, Menkib there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, under a dark sky, this is, it's surprising actually how bright this is, even without a filter, it does pop. The next one is absolutely, I think the most, one of the most difficult ones on the list which is uh, Sharpless 2-245, an emission nebula located in Taurus and otherwise oddly known as the Eridanus arc for its greatest extent projecting into the southeast of the constellation of Taurus. Yeah, yeah, that is... I've never seen this one yet, actually. So um, part of that is because it's uh, mostly, you know, wintertime here at this, t- or to see this, and that limits some of my opportunity to get out there. But one day I hope to see this. 
H beta filter is uh, absolutely necessary to see it. It's three degrees south of like sort of that main star chain that projects in front of the Hyades. And I first came across this in the April 2009 edition of Sky and Telescope magazine, where Dennis DeChico and Sean Walker presented an article called Imaging the Orion Eridana Super Bubble. And I noticed that that area there was as bright as some of the areas in uh, Orion, the Orion molecular cloud that I had previously seen. So armed with my five and five inch telescope, my five inch refractor and an H beta filter, I tracked down that target and a whole pile of other stuff. Hmm, that's awesome. But I feel like that one is is doable for people. But you need a very, very dark sky sight to see it. Like definitely you need to be seeing magnitude seven stars unaided eye or it's going to be pretty tough. Maybe if you have a big telescope though, I can yeah. The next two objects, these are really interesting targets, very easy to find, probably can see them in the city if you have like a good five or eight inch telescope. And they are NGC 1647 and 1746. They are each about 40 arc minutes in size. They aren't huge, but they are in the horns of Taurus. Oh, okay. Interesting. They work as really great binocular targets from any kind of site that has reasonably dark skies. I didn't even put the magnitude down because they aren't that uh, that faint. And NGC 1746 is the furthest one to the left or towards the east. And it actually has two other open clusters superposed over top of it, NGC 1750 and 1758 on its bottom southern edge. Okay. I uh, when when we go observing in the winter and Mike has his 15 magnification Canon binoculars, that's where I go because it's mm-hmm. just like somehow a 15 mag- uh, magnification binocular is like the perfect instrument for hunting down the set of four uh, open clusters. That that whole region there is just rich. You know, yep. it's a great area to pan with binoculars or a wide field telescope. There's so much to see there. I'm glad you said that because directly below them is Colander 65, which is an open cluster located in Taurus. It is six degrees across. Holy smokes. Wow, that's huge. It is huge. So you really need one of those wacky wide field binoculars or one of these crazy little telescopes. But even in a 60 millimeter, I can get seven degrees and it's enough to take this in. It appears as a giant mushroom. So that we should call this the Bill Weir cluster because he's a, he's a mushroom gatherer. A beautiful, really binocular target if you have wide field binoculars, I think is probably uh, the right instrument for most people to hunt that one down. And it's, it's reasonably bright. I forget what it is, but it's, you know, it's like a fifth magnitude open cluster. It's not exceptionally faint or anything. It's just really big. Yeah, right on. Talking about exceptionally faint though, we have one of my favorite targets recently mentioned <laughs> and accredited to me in Sky and Telescope magazine, Sharpless 2-264, which I call the Angelfish Nebulae, which I think somebody else had mentioned it. It's not a name I've given it. It's a huge emission nebulae in the very top of Orion. It actually encompasses the entire bit of Orion's head. It's uh, 4.5 degrees by 4 degrees, and the angelfish requires an H-beta filter. And you just look around in the vicinity of Lambda Orionis, which is the head of Orion. And there's a bit of a cluster there. It's a very sparse cluster called Colander 69. 
Mm-hmm. And in and around there, um, that little open cluster, you see a few chains of stars, and you will see, even in a very wide field instrument, just this inconsistency amongst the field. So, so that's uh, that sounds very difficult. <laughs> that one, that one is tough. But again, um, I get up in the early hours at my dark sky site this summer and put my Takahashi out and did an observation and a sketch of it. So it is it is possible from just any kind of reasonably dark sky site. Cool. Moving along, this one is going to be a very easy target mixed with perhaps the most controversial target in the list. Woo-hoo. That's Colander 70. Do you know what Colander 70 is, Shane? No. It's an Obi-Wan. I'll give you a hint. It's an Obi-Wan association. Okay. In the center of Orion. Okay. The Orion belt. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> I, yeah. I, you know what? That's funny because the first time that I saw Call Under Seventy, I'm like, oh, interesting. And I'm like, well, where is it? Uh, you know, I'm looking at the star chart and like, well, I don't see it. And and then it was, oh, it's the belt. Okay, <laughs> yeah, three and a half degrees across the uh, the the middle star there though, Al Malam is an interesting star because if you sort of pan below and then go back and forth that uh, in the, in that general region, you'll see there's a one by two degree bright section. If you use low power, I've seen this in binoculars and my telescope, again, using the super wide broadband filter from uh, batter. And I put an image in here. I have permission to use this image by Andrea. I'm, I'm probably saying her name incorrectly, but it illustrates the the waves of the gap that I was uh, that I was talking about when I when I wrote that up. Anyway, you can actually see those two waves if if you look at the show notes. Okay. But the reason why that's uh, controversial is because supposedly Herschel detected something here, and then it was later listed as a uh, like an error in the NGC or a non-observable object. So I'm not sure if what he observed was this, or simply he made some sort of other positional error. Got it. The next target is, and I'm not sure, I feel like more people uh, have an easier job of observing IC2118, the Witch Head Nebula, than I have. Have you ever seen this one? The, to me, this one is super tough. I don't believe I have seen this in Eridanus, hey? Yeah, I don't think so. It's right off Rigel, and it's a reflection nebula. It's three degrees by one degrees across. You got to use low power, wide field binoculars or telescopes. You can't use any sort of filter because it's a reflection nebula. You got to keep Rigel out of the field. I've seen it. The best I've seen it was, again, this fall, the same night I was doing some of my other observations I referenced. And it was an exceptional morning and I was able to sketch it. And it really, to me, it looked like the Witch Head Nebula. I've seen it on two other occasions. And I wasn't able to be as comfortable. And this gets down to observing chair, a very comfortable observing location to be in. And and that kind of stuff made all the difference in the world for me. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. With any challenging object, the comfort factor does certainly, you know, play into it, right? If if you're not able to just immerse yourself into that view, uh, you might not see some of this stuff. And speaking of not seeing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> This, this, I think, again, is is getting into the uh, the rare oxygen of objects, which is Simeus or Seamus 147, otherwise known as Sharpless 2-240, which is a supernova remnant up on the Taurus-Origue border. And my notes say, if you thought any of the previous objects were challenging, well, they were just the learning curve. <laughs> 
you the advantage to this target and i think that the reason why this is is something you can observe at least for us here in canada is that it gets very close to the zenith and in fact like if you go a little bit further south it's going to be uh it's going to pass through the zenith uh exactly i think if you're in like south dakota or something but regardless you need to wait for it to culminate at the zenith or as close to it as possible you need to use those wide field filters and the widest field you can get i've observed this in my five inch uh refractor and eight inch and larger reflectors i've observed it in a 16 inch reflector made by peter Picure and mike renner there in ontario and there's a bright section i call it the skates egg it looks to me it looks like a skates egg casing if you're familiar with what that looks like it's a knot about 10 degrees east of the uh, eighth magnitude star sao 77397 so find that star and then go uh go about 10 uh arc uh minutes east of that you'll uh you'll see the brightest section it's challenging though that is a super challenging thing you need a very dark sky and it needs to be culminating at the zenith basically so that's how you see it if you want to see it mm, oh. that that sao reference reminds me of a an 80s song about some phone number eight eight six seven nine three oh nine you're not supposed to give up my number on the radio. Oh, okay. sorry, sorry. All right, Colander 89. There's an easier target for you. It's right up by Messi 35, and it's a degree across. So it's a super mm. large cluster. It's pretty bright, large, and loose. So if you go and you can't find Seamus 147, this giant supernova remnant that's crazy tough to see, then just pop down and have an easy success there at Colander 89. And moving further south, this is the last target I'm going to talk about, Shane. I know I blew our time here by 10 minutes. I appreciate you hanging in with me. Oh, don't don't rush. We're okay. We're All okay. right. Good stuff. I can I can hear the, the lunch bell ringing is Colander 132. And this is one of my favorite open clusters. Do you ever take a look at this one? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, it's beautiful. 80 arc minutes across and a large cluster sprinkling with these beautiful, colorful stars. You can see it during full moon. So there's an object that's large, bright, beautiful, doesn't require a dark sky sight. Basically, I can walk to the edge, and I've done this many times in the winter with a tiny pair of binoculars, and I can view this Colander 132 star cluster. It's right between the feet of Canis Major. It's right at the bottom of Canis Major, just on the Puppis border. And one of the reasons why I like this is it's bright, easy to observe. From a dark sky site, it is spectacular. You can view it with your unaided eye even. It actually looks like a comet. And I wasn't the first one to notice this. Actually, I've tried to correct this in the literature because... Aristotle is often credited with seeing M41 with his unaided eye and detailing is a comet. However, M41 does not match his description. And if you follow his description, you'll actually see that his description matches Colander 132 as somebody who actually goes out to truly dark skies and looks at this stuff. To me, his observation matches Colander 132 and not M41. So with that, that's a little bit of a taste of my wide field wonders list for people, Shane. Yeah. So is this, so, so the, the list is located in the RASC observers handbook. Is it also posted on the RASC site? It is not, but I can okay. 
I I mean, it's 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 a list that I've curated. It's not like quote unquote objects that I've discovered or anything. <laughs> My name associated with them. Uh, however, I'm happy to send out digital copies to people if they want to email us at actualastronomy at gmail I can send those out to you. Or if if you want, Shane, if you simply just want to post these uh, these show notes, people can kind of follow along because I put little finder charts and uh, a little bit more advice than what's in those notes anyway and i include like the ra and deck information in this as well yeah for sure i'll post this on actualastronomy.com so you know again as always people don't have to feverishly write down all of this stuff and uh you know it'll serve as a, a good reference for anybody looking for some wide field objects well thanks for that Ching. and anything else to add to this episode that is all sir well thank you so much and thanks everybody for listening we'll talk to you soon Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>